If you have your Bibles, please open them up to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 to 11 this morning. As you turn there, you can think about how often people in our day fail to tell the truth. There are many reasons for this, aren't there? Many reasons why, why we ourselves have shaded the truth. Back in 1890, there was a woman, a Madame Monet, Madame, uh, Madame Marquette. She was the wife of a wealthy Algerian businessman. She had gone to Monte Carlo in France from Toulon, and she had gone there to collect a debt for her husband. And in getting there, she had uh, collected that debt, and on her way home on the train from Monte Carlo to Toulon, she fell asleep in her compartment, and she was robbed. She got back to the station, and she reported the robbery immediately, told her husband that she had been, she had been robbed, and they reported the, the, the theft of 7,000 francs, which was an enormous sum in that day. The police began to investigate. Initially, there was some skepticism, but just a few days later, on the same train, there was a man who tried to hold up another man on the train at knife point. And it was believed that this person whom they caught, that perhaps he was the one who had stolen the, the money from this older woman, from this other woman, Madame Marquette. It was seen after time that he was innocent of this crime, and the police began to investigate more and more. There were some inconsistencies with her story. And over time, it was revealed that she hadn't been robbed at all. Instead, she had gone to the Monte Carlo. She had there collected the large debt that her husband was owed. But before she left, she was tempted by the gambling there and lost all of the money. And on the way home, the best she could do was come up with this story of how she had lost her money and in hopes that her husband wouldn't be upset with her, that it wouldn't, he would see that it wasn't her fault at all. She had been robbed and she would be excused and exonerated. It was someone else's fault. And of course, that story fell through and she and her husband were exposed to enormous embarrassment. Of course, this isn't the only lie in history. There have been such notable lies in the early part of the 19th century. There, was the, there is the story of a, the, the New York Sun, a, a well-known newspaper at the time, published a series of nine articles in their, uh, in their newspaper. They published these articles from a noted and well-known astronomer of their day, a, a famous astronomer. And therein, that astronomer claims to have developed a new kind of lens for his telescope, a hydro-magnifier lens, and he used that lens, and he, by that lens, he was able to get, gain a, a, an unbelievably close-up view of the surface of the moon. And there he begins to tell everyone all that he saw from that close-up surface of the moon how there was such lush, vege- uh, lush vegetation, how there was such 
uh, enormous variety of life. He describes a, a horned bear and elk and moose and a kind of beaver that doesn't have a tail and it walks on its two back legs and it carries its young in kind of a swaying motion. A month after they published this series of articles uh, and their newspaper subscriptions has swelled the newspaper quietly announced on a back page that it had all been a hoax. Of course, we know this to be true now. But there are lots of reasons why people do not tell the truth. Perhaps the worst reasons are because people believe the lie that they are telling. That is perhaps the most difficult of all. There are many personal reasons why we might lie, why we might shade the truth, but isn't it fascinating where we, in our pluralistic society, where everyone is permitted to have their truth, our truth, my truth, your truth, yet we still want people to tell us the truth. Where we don't even want to admit that there is an objective reality beyond our own truth, yet every newspaper still wants to claim, every reporter still wants to claim that they are the ones who are presenting the truth. One may believe a report about a woman being robbed on a train, or they may be taken, about a, taken in by a hoax of life on the moon. But all of these reports, soon enough, will be seen to be counterfeit. And if enough people in a society believe that which is counterfeit, we know that it will affect a society as a whole. It can change an entire country. Lies that are believed by large groups of people can change, can change everything. Counterfeit claims affect our lives. They affect the world. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul wants us to see that the stakes for knowing and believing the truth of God, for contending and combating against counterfeit claims to Christian truth, that the urgency, the stakes are so much higher. And if this was true in Timothy's day, it is no less true in our own. The times are no less urgent than our own. Every two or three years, there is published a, a massive study in our country about what American Christians believe. And those who are considered, or for the sake of the study, those who are considered as Christians are, are those who agree to these following statements. They say that they believe that the Bible is the highest authority for what they believe, that it is very important for them personally to encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior, that they hold that Jesus' death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of their sin, only, and they believe that only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's free gift of eternal life. And all of these things are good. And then they go on to answer questions this way. They begin to, we begin to see a pattern that almost 50% of these professing Christians in our country believe that God learns and adapts and changes to different circumstances. As the world changes and adapts, so God learns and changes and adapts. He grows just as the world changes and evolves. 65% of these professing believers believe that all people are, are born innocent. 
56% of them believe that professing Christians believe that God accepts the worship of all religious people. And only 43% of those who claim, I'm sorry, 43% of those who claim to follow Christ don't even believe that he is the son of God, that he is truly God. And these statistics, along with many others, tell us that that Christianity in our day and age is facing a counterfeit kind of Christianity. That there are those who want to claim the name of Christ, and yet their beliefs do not match up to even the most basic beliefs that Christians have held for the last 2,000 years. More importantly, they don't hold up to the scrutiny of God's word. And in our text today, Paul reminds Timothy and all of us of the necessity of combating counterfeit Christianity. And of course, that there is counterfeit Christianity shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't have surprised Timothy. We read earlier in Acts chapter 20 how Paul, before he left, he visits with the, the people, the elders of uh, the, the church there in Ephesus. And he begins to lay out for them, hey, you know I'm going away and I know I'm never going to see you again. But I want to warn you, he says in verses 30 and 31, I want to warn you that there is coming a time when wolves will come into the church. And not even just wolves coming into the church, but there will be those who begin to rise from within the church and they will begin to teach and influence others to believe things that aren't true. You need to be worried about them. And what we find is that Paul leaves Timothy at Ephesus to combat these truths. To combat this counterfeit Christianity. So let's read, follow along as I read verses 3 to 11 of 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul writes this to Timothy and to the church there at Ephesus where Timothy is at. He says, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, this region of Macedonia... Remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some have, turned, have strayed, having turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Paul here is urging Timothy to combat this counterfeit Christianity. So before we begin to study God's word this morning, would you join me in a word of prayer, asking the Lord for his help. Father, this is your word. This is your truth. Sanctify us by your truth, O Lord. Help us to rejoice in it. O God, we pray that you would work in our own hearts. 
Identify for us where we have softened where you are clear. And may we boldly, gladly, joyfully uphold that which your word makes clear. Oh, Father, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. We see in verses 3 to 7, Paul begins to describe this in various ways. He begins to describe the counterfeit Christianity that is taking root in Ephesus. We see the the source of this counterfeit Christianity in verses 3 and verse 6. He says, I, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some, that is some people, certain individuals. Here are certain individuals that are teaching another doctrine. In verse 6 we see this again. From which some, that is some people, certain people, certain individuals, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk. Paul is addressing that there are some individuals who are leading the way in this. We need to hold, when we think of truth and its errors and those who are propagating it, we need to think in terms, in different terms. There are those who are teaching it, who are influencing others to believe it, and those who are merely being taught, those who are being led astray themselves. And Paul is identifying the root of the problem is these some people, these certain individuals that he is, that he and the church would have been able to identify rather quickly. He doesn't identify them by name here, but he identifies them by what they teach. We see what they are teaching in verse 3. He says, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they may teach no other doctrine. This idea of no other doctrine or other doctrine, it comes from a a single word. It has the idea of of a different doctrine. This assumes something massively important, that there was a set of truths that Christians held to, that all Christians held to. For Paul to be able to speak of different doctrine, and there are those believers who are teaching something that we as Christians do not believe. This is a different teaching, a different doctrine. It assumes that there is a doctrine, that there is a set pattern of faith, that there is a set of teachings that believers hold dear. This is important because in about a century, a little more, about 100, 150 years ago, the idea began to spring up that what we see in the early part of the uh, New Testament, rather in, in the first and second century, wasn't a Christian faith, but rather they were Christian faiths. It wasn't so much that there was a Christianity, but rather there are Christianities. That is, there were lots of forms of Christianity at the beginning. What happened over time was that Paul and the apostles and then later church leaders, they oppressed anyone who disagreed with them so that ultimately who won out was what we have. The the truths that we now look back on, these are the truths that have been passed down from generation to generation. This is the word that has been passed down to us from God. All of this, we are told, is really the result of oppression at the beginning of of the church squelching out anybody else who had a different opinion. But the reality is quite the reverse. What we find in the New Testament, and as we can trace it through history, is that there was, at the very beginning, 
a belief, a doctrine, a set of doctrines that Christians held dear. They could speak of one faith, one Lord, one baptism. We could speak of the truth, not the truths. Christians understood that there was truth that could be held, that there was truth that could be seen, recorded in Scripture. Truth that could be trusted. Not Christianities, but a Christian faith. And Paul puts Timothy on notice. He says, look, you have a responsibility here. Here are the problems. These individuals are teaching a a different doctrine, something that deviates from that which is accepted. And what is driving these teachers? We find in verse 4. They are teaching another doctrine. He says, charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies. That word, give heed, might be translated devoted or addicted or fascinated or obsessed. Here are individuals who are fascinated. They are obsessed. They are addicted with, he describes as myths and genealogies. And the reality is, we are not 100% sure what he is referring to here. Clearly, this would have been absolutely understood by Timothy and the people at Ephesus. Our guess is that the myths that he is referring to is one of two things. Either they are myths myths related to the, the pagan religions around them. The myths of the Greek and Roman gods and goddesses and all that they did. These myths that would have encouraged immorality. It also may be myths are referring to here as, as those as those myth stories, extra-biblical stories, that rose up about, about Christians or uh, famous, famous followers of God in, in history. Around the time of Paul, we have records of well-known believers like Abraham. They were alternative histories and alternative stories that were being written about them. There was kind of a fascination with what might Abraham have been like. We, we, while we have much written about him and other, other Old Testament characters, in the grand scheme of things, we have actually very little. There is a lot left to the imagination, and it appears that there were many who were writing to fill in the blanks. They were creating their own uh, screenplays, so to speak, and tying in all of these events with stories that they themselves were making up. And these may have been the myths that Paul is talking about. These, these speculations. And we think it possibly that's what they're talking about because he mentions myths in connection with genealogies. You know, we, not, we finished not long ago working our way slowly through the book of Genesis. And there we found many genealogies, probably more than we would have liked. And we worked through all of those. But part of what Moses is doing in giving us those genealogies is he is establishing the history of God's people. He is grounding the redemptive work of God in history. And it appears that part of what these people were doing is they were establishing an alternative history. Not only alternative history for individual people with myth stories, but an alternative redemptive history altogether. They were altering the word of God. They were adding to it. 
And these were people were fascinated with these things. And the upshot we see is, is twofold. They are promoting speculation, we see here in verse 4. Nor give heed to false to, to fables or myths and endless genealogies. And here in the New King James, it says, which cause disputes, and clearly they would have. But a better way of reading that, and you, it is reflected in almost every other major, major translation, is that these are things which promote speculations. That is, they effectively turn the Christian faith into a Christian conspiracy theory. Speculations about things which could not be known, about which Scripture is silent more than this, we see they, they redirect people from that which is most important. These not only cause speculations, but they rather than godly edification, which is in faith, that word edification there in the New King James translation might be better translated as God's work or the redemptive work of God in the world. What's happening is that people were getting so caught up in in speculative ideas about what might have been rather than advancing the mission that God has given us as believers. Their efforts were, were being taken up with these, these myths and genealogies, these things which, which served no purpose, endless genealogies, worthless. Rather than giving themselves to the work of God in the world, rather than pursue the goal of missions, the goals of discipleship. And we see this no less effect in our days. That people engage in speculation in all sorts of ways. Try to tie in what is going on in the world with what we see in Scripture when we try to to make sense of everything. And Christians have been doing that for 2,000 years and and every time we, we think we have something solid, it, it ends up not being the case. I remember when, years ago, Scud missiles were tied to a specific interpretation in the book of Revelation, and clearly we were on the cusp of the tribulation because we could see all these things. Brothers and sisters, that serves to no purpose. More than this, by, by, by not sticking with the clear Word of God, we get fascinated with what the world says. We begin to advocate and to teach things that God's Word clearly commands us not to to speak of. We begin to soften on ideas and beliefs that the Word of God has made absolutely clear to us. We begin to capitulate to the world because we are so fascinated with the world's approval rather than giving ourselves to God's word. These brothers and sisters, these, these false teachers there in Ephesus, they are fascinated with fables, myths, and endless genealogies. And as a result of all this, they are, they are twisting God's word. Because if we are going to teach a different doctrine, if we are going to give consent to that which God's word clearly denies, we must twist God's word. We see this in verse 7. Desiring to be teachers of the law, yet they understand neither what they say nor the things which they confidently affirm. They want to be teachers of God's word. 
And there are many today who would claim to be teachers of God's Word. We can find them online. We can find them on TV. We can find them on the radio. We can find them on, whether in print or... uh, We can find them, their words written out in blog posts and articles. And they would claim that we can find a way to to allow all these things in our world that our world loves, we can find a place for them in in the church, we can find a place for them to, to be accepting of them all. But the upshot is, no matter how confident they are, we are, they are desperately wrong, desperately twisting God's word. desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm, neither the things which they confidently affirm. And we can, we can be taken in by someone's conviction, by someone's confidence in their speaking, that they must be right. But truth is not measured by someone's conviction. Truth is measured by someone's adherence to God's word. Truth is measured up against what God's Word clearly says. There is a a character on an old show, The Office, who is observing Michael Scott as he does what he always does in messing things up. And this one side character who shows up and then goes away, Vikram, he observes Michael acting so confidently in all that he does. And he says, confidence is the the food of the wise man, but it is the liquor of the fool. That is very true. We can, through confidence, give a sense that we know what we are talking about. But sometimes when we lack all assurance, all foundation, sometimes people will speak all the more confidently, with all the more certainty. Confidence does not mean someone is, com- is correct. What we see Paul doing in these verses is not only unpacking what counterfeit Christianity looks like, but he calls Timothy and he calls us as churches, as Christians, to combat it. To combat it. And here he's speaking not so much of, of how they're going to combat false views in the world. Here he is speaking, how do we combat uh, counterfeit Christianity within our church? How do we fight and contend for the faith amongst the people of God? We see in verse 3, the very first thing that he reminds Timothy of, he says, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia. And here he is speaking about the, the call that he placed on Timothy more than five years prior when he left him in Ephesus so that Paul could go on to Macedonia and continue the work there. He reminds him of what he says, and he says, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus. I left you there to remain there. Paul is reminding Timothy to stay. Put yourself in Timothy's place. I mean, a lot has changed in the the, the years that Paul has been away. Do you think Timothy was tempted at times to, to leave to find a different church? To find one where it wasn't going to be so difficult? 
where there wasn't going to be so much opposition to the truth. A church that was more unified, a church that was maybe bigger, maybe wealthier, maybe better. Certainly there has got to be something else out there. And so he writes to Paul, Paul, this is everything going on. And Paul's first words to him is, do you remember what I told you to do when I left for Macedonia? I left you there to remain there. As I urged you and I went to Macedonia, remain. It is not the church leaders or that we as Christians can never leave a church. But that our first impulse must be to stay. Because we can accomplish far more in the long run than we can in the short run. One pastor put his plan for his church like this. He was going to preach, pray, love, and stay. Because he understood something. That a healthy church is not the product of one or two or three or five years. It is the product of decades of work. A healthy church doesn't happen overnight. Godly men and women doesn't happen quickly. It takes time. And if this, is going, if, if this church in Ephesus is going to, to make it, it's going to be because faithful believers stayed. And so he says, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus. Not only is he to remain there, he is to use his authority well. We might say he is to leverage his authority well. Timothy has been given a particular authority at this church. He is, it's, he is a, a, a pastor here, a leader here in this church. And he is called to not only remain in Ephesus, but to charge some that they may teach no other doctrine. This word, to, to charge, could be translated to command. I left you there to remain there so that you would command those who are teaching another doctrine, a false doctrine, that they would stop it, that they would teach no other doctrine. Paul is calling on Timothy to leverage his authority for the sake of the church. We have talked about before how a a, a pastor's authority, an elder's authority, is not an authority to control but an authority to counsel. That's what we see throughout Scripture. But uh, pastors and elders don't have the right to, to, to dictate everything that we do and what we say and, and where we go. It's not a pastor's authority, but a, we simply counsel from the Word. What does the Word say? We counsel from the Word. But here, it is stronger than mere counsel. It is, in this case, command. But it is not a, a command to do whatever you want, Timothy. Command them to, to follow you. A command to, you, you get to command them and to order them around. No, it's command some. Command these certain persons that they teach no other doctrine. A Christian's authority, a pastor's authority, an elder's authority is tied to the word of God. And it's tied to the word of God alone. He is called to command. Imagine how we, we, we can see very clearly how we as churches, we as Christians, how leaders, church leaders specifically, fail in this today. On one level, they, they, they fail to give the command. They shrink back. 
from declaring, this is what God says. Do not do this. Go here, do this. Believe, repent, follow. By failing to to teach that which is clearly laid out in God's word or to fail to restrain others, like in Timothy's case, to to restrain someone from teaching something that is harmful. On the flip side, leaders in churches abuse their authority by, by commanding, controlling everything in the church to make it benefit them, to use and hurt others, throwing others on the bus simply to advance their own influence and power. We have seen both of these kinds of illustrations of church leadership in our day these days. But genuine godly leadership in the church is restrained and constrained by God's word. And it is restrained and constrained by God's word for the good and the joy of God's people. This is why elsewhere Paul will refer to elders in a church as those who work for your joy. Or as he writes in 2 Corinthians one twenty four, that despite his hard words to them, he had written a previous letter to them that was hard, Yet he says he was using his authority as an apostle not to lord it or to dominate over their faith. But he says, we work with you for your joy. The elders of this church, we as pastors, we we long for your eternal joy with Christ. Not only are we to remain, not only are we to use our our leverage, our authority well, but also we are to aim for love. We see this in verse 5. Now the purpose of, the New King James says, now the purpose of the commandment. But that word commandment is the same word translated in verse 3 as charge. The purpose of our command, the purpose of the charge that we have been given is love. That is, we are to be, the the purpose and the aim of ministry is love for God's people. And not only are we to be loving, it is a noun. And so the the picture is that we are to be, the aim of our charge is to cultivate love within the church. That the church becomes a place where God's people serve and care one another well. Timothy is to be motivated by love with the aim of encouraging love in the church. And this flows from three things. Hearts that have been purified by the finished work of Jesus Christ. Good consciences, that is, those consciences which are indicative of those who have, by God's grace, sought to follow the Lord in their lives. And those who have a sincere and genuine faith, that is, they hold to a genuine faith in the truths of Scripture. A genuine faith in Christ. This is the aim of godly leaders. This is how we contend for the truth. We stay. We remain. Rather than escape, we leverage whatever authority God has given us. We leverage it well for the sake of God's people which may mean that it will cause us to stand, to be bold, to be compassionate. And we aim for the good of God's people, for the love of God's people. 
And ultimately, we find in verses 8 to 11, we are to hold fast to the word rightly. Hold fast to the word rightly. We see Paul writing, he says, but we know that the law is good. So clearly, verse 7, these teachers, they wanted to be teachers of the law, but they didn't understand what they said, nor the things which they confidently affirmed, all right? So here are teachers, they are just the image is given that they are almost making it up as they go along. They want to be teachers of God's word, but they do not even understand the word that they are preaching or declaring. But Paul, referring to God's word, God's law, he says, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless, for the rebellious, for the insubordinate. And here he begins to unpack in a variety of ways how the law is to be used and and the ones for whom it is to be used. And the aim is this. If if the false teachers are saying, look, the law is there, and, and through adherence and obedience to the law, we gain a good standing with God. If you are good, God will affirm you. He may rescue you and redeem you if you are good enough. He will, you will be in his good standing if you will simply obey all of God's law. And Paul says, no, the law is good, but only if we use it lawfully. And the law is not for saints to use, to gain a good standing with God. No, it is for sinners and that it is to remind us as sinners that there is no hope in and of ourselves to come to God. Part of the purpose and the function of the law in the life of, in, in our lives is to remind us that the law cannot save. The law cannot produce favor with God through obedience to it. Because again and again and again we fail in it. And he describes it is for the unrighteous, it is not for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the rebellious, for the ungodly, for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and mothers, for manslayers, for those who commit sexual immorality. And this word there, translated in the New King James, is fornicators. It's an old word, but it, it, it pictures everything, any kind of sexual immorality that deviates from the clear written commandments of God. For those who practice homosexuality, for kidnappers, and that word translated kidnappers would also be applied to those who take people and sell them for slaves, for liars. Did you think you would escape this? For liars. I love how Paul puts it there. All of a sudden, he's, and he's following here the, the Ten Commandments. And you're reading through this and you may think, okay, I've not done this, I've not done this, I've not done this. For liars. For perjurers. And if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, here we are reminded that the law is good if it is used rightly. The law is not a way to favor with God. Rather, the law is a way to remind us, to humble us, to seek God. 
It is not a way for us to save ourselves. Rather, it is a way for us to be humbled so that we will seek salvation from him who alone gives it through the shed blood of Jesus. And that's where Paul goes in the final verse. All of this is according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to his trust. The glorious gospel, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. And it is glorious because it reminds us so deeply that our our standing with God is not something you and I have produced or added to in any way. Your standing with the blessed God is not a product of your hard work, of your good prayers, of your religiosity. It is a product of God himself. It is a product of Christ. And this is why the gospel is the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Of he who is most blessed, he who is most happy. For what we could not do ourselves, God in his mercy has done. We combat counterfeit Christianity not by running and scurrying into silence, but within and amongst God's people by by remaining, by standing boldly for the truth, by submitting ourselves to God's word, rightly understood, which means it, it takes work for us to understand it. To using whatever authority God has given us, to use it well. Whether we are a pastor or an elder or a Sunday school teacher, or a nursery worker, or someone who cares for children, or any other such thing. Pointing people to the word of God and to the glory of Christ Jesus. In the late 19th century, I'm sorry, in the early, mid to late 19th century, we saw in our country the rise of what became known as theological liberalism. That is a... a, avid denial of the deity of Christ, a denial of the miraculous, a denial that Christ or any, any miracles done in the scriptures was, was legitimate in any way. These were all believed to merely be myths which we needed to look over, cut out, see the kernel of truth within, but ultimately not to credit. The Bible was not to, meant to be or really seen to be God's word in any real sense, although it might be a means by which God speaks to us. But all what they did was deny everything that Christians have believed for centuries, to deny what we clearly saw in God's word. They reduced Christianity down to to social action and activity, tied it to what became known as the social gospel. And they labeled themselves not not something else, they labeled themselves as, as a progressive Christianity as a kinder, gentler Christianity, one that was seeking the welfare of the world. But in 1923, frustrated with the confusion that was going on in Christian circles, a man by the name of J. Grisham Machen wanted to set a clear, bold line that what we were dealing with was not a traditional Christianity and a progressive Christianity, not, a, not one version and another version of Christianity, but rather 
It was Christianity and something else entirely. And so he wrote a book and he titled it Christianity and Liberalism. Here was Christianity and here was, it was something else entirely. They used Christian words. They, 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 they talked about Christ. They talked about Jesus. They even opened up their Bibles from time to time. But the truths that were believed and the convictions that were held had nothing in common with what Christians have believed for centuries. Brothers and sisters, we are in danger in this age as Christians are in danger of, in every age of believing that which claims to be Christianity and giving it the same level of respect as, as that which has been passed down to us. We are not dealing with Christianity and progressive Christianity. We are dealing with Christianity and liberalism. Christianity and something else. Genuine truth and its counterfeit. Friend, we, we must combat, we must contend for the truth. To remain, to remain faithful requires a gritty kind of faith. When all seems dark in the world, but to remain faithful to what God clearly says, it, re- it requires courage. We talked a couple weeks ago when we looked at who Timothy was. Timothy is not a man who was, who was bold and courageous and outspoken. We saw that elsewhere he is described as almost shy. A, a person who needed encouragement a man who, who required some, some encouragement to do what was right? Think of the courage that this took. For him to, to walk into church and to command those who were teaching a different doctrine to not teach it at all. It took a commitment to study God's word, to understand what it said. And to hold fast. And it will take nothing short of all of that for us today. Moms and dads, our kids need this. Brothers and sisters, your soul needs this. We dare not give in to that which claims to be Christianity but is nothing in common to the Word of God. If we are to follow after Christ, we must know His truth. And we must be committed to it, even in an age when God's people themselves often believe the lie. Let us hold fast to the truth of God's Word. Let us hold fast to Christ. For there is no greater foundation than him. There is no other truth that will sanctify us but him and his word. Look. Look to God's word. Look to Christ alone. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, oh, how we need your mercy. Oh, how we need you to guide and direct us to embolden us, to give us wisdom. 
as we navigate relationships, as we navigate conversations, as we navigate all sorts of circumstances that you have put us in. Oh God, give us a gritty faith in you. Give us a confidence in your word that is not muddied by mere speculation or muddied by the the teachings of the world or, or those who would claim to be followers of you, but whose words differ from what we see in your word. Oh Lord, help us. Assist us that we may remain steadfast, O oh Lord, holding firm to the foundation in Christ, holding firm to the foundation that is laid in your word. O oh God, we pray that you will strengthen us and strengthen our resolve to live for you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.